Welcome to the Counter Narrative Podcast, a show designed to change the way we talk and think about education. By sharing stories of successes and triumphs, we aim to challenge the dominant narrative that often negatively portrays our disenfranchised populations. I'm your host, Charles Williams, an urban educator for more than 15 years, a current school principal in Chicago, an educational consultant, an equity advocate, and the co-host of Inside the Principal's Office. Let's get started. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to tell you about a super exciting event that I have coming up, and I would love for you to be in attendance. As I mentioned in the intro to the show, I am the co-host of Inside the Principal's Office, a web series that runs live on the first and third Saturday of each month. During the show, my co-host Michael McWilliams and I bring on other educational leaders and discuss the most pressing issues and topics facing us today. We also have a Facebook group where educators can connect and learn from each other. Well, this summer, we're planning to host an event where we can get together in person. That's right, not another Zoom or a Google Meet, but live. Even better, it's only $35. So join us in Dallas for a networking reception on Friday, July 30th, followed by a day of activities on Saturday, July 31st. Stop by our Twitter page, join us on Facebook, or check out an upcoming episode for more information. I look forward to finally meeting you. In this episode, I welcome back Kate O'Connor, a 9th and 12th grade English teacher in upstate New York. Kate is a mental health peer and fierce advocate who is heavily passionate about social justice, anti-racism, and anti-ableism. She also believes in combating weight bias and promoting size diversity and representation in the classroom and beyond. We wanted to honor National Mental Health Awareness Month by diving a little deeper into some of the concepts that we discussed previously, while also examining some new perspectives around mental health. We begin by discussing the concepts of experts and comparing lived experiences with earned certifications. Kate also points out that, despite the old adage, you know, that sticks and stones may break my bones, you know the one, that words actually do carry plenty of power, and thus we need to be cognizant of how we utilize terms. The casual misuse of medical diagnoses to commodify everyday behavior contributes to the misinterpretation and misunderstanding of real problems facing many people. This conversation touches on a lot of topics, but as always, ends with some ideas and suggestions for moving forward and doing the work. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and remember that it's okay not to be okay. And if you are struggling, please find someone to talk to. There are a few resources in the show notes if you need them. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to the Counter Narrative Podcast. 
Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different um, from from our normal from our normal routine. So, first and foremost, I have Kate O'Connor back on with us today. And some of you might be thinking, "Wait a second, that that name sounds familiar," and it should because Kate joined us, um, you know, not too long ago as we were discussing and we were finally connecting. And Kate had some amazing things to say around mental health. I know it, it caused me to pause and reflect. And so she and I touched base in between and agreed that it would be impertinent, um, uh, pertinent for her to rejoin us here in May um, on Mental Health Awareness Month to dive into some of those concepts a little more, to explore those ideas a little bit more. So I'm super excited to welcome back uh, Kate O'Connor. Kate, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's so funny that you say like, you know, not that long ago. And I remember um, the episode that we did at first aired in February, but it feels like it was like almost like last year <laughs> at this point. It, it <sighs> does. I'll admit I was sitting here trying to like think to so I could say them. And I was like, wait, was it was it that long ago? Because yeah, time is time has been flying by. Oh, man. So, so Kate, you know, I know that you and I were talking a little bit before this, um, and, and so we don't have right the general uh, setup of questions and flow of conversation here. Um, so, I think the first thing that I want to get out of the way, um, you know, as our listeners are listening and they're thinking, "All right, cool," you know, we're talking about mental health. This is something that's important. He has this um, expert on, you know, Kate O'Connor, and so. I want to jump into that really quick because I know you and I were discussing a little bit the concept of what makes an expert an expert. So can we dive into that a little bit about why you're so passionate, one, about this field, um, but as well as why, why you would be considered, if you would even consider yourself, a so-called expert? Um, so I, you know, I always say with expert, like the word expert is so so ego driven um at least in you know from where i where i sit but mm -hmm. i think a lot of times i consider myself you know a learner in process uh even in things that i experience right cuz at at the last session that we had together we talked about you know uh a little bit about my own experiences and this notion of expert you know i kind of tend to to problematize a little bit when, when I'm thinking about it, because, you know, so often, even as an English teacher, we tell our kids, you know, uh, get the research, get the data and add that to your essay, right? You can't just make something up and put it in an essay and say that it's fact. But, you know, what if we considered ourselves and trusted ourselves enough to be the expert on our own lives? You know, just like we would extend and hopefully extend that to our students, right? Our students know themselves best. We know ourselves best. So, you know, when I when I think of the word expert in terms of mental health, it's like, yeah, if someone can sit there and call me an expert because I know so much, I've read so much, I've lived so much. But at the end of the day, you know, we're all always learning new things and new items of information to consider. Um, even if it's an experience we've lived our whole lives. You know, I, I love that you said that because you're right. right? I, I think a lot of times people, as we are doing any sort of challenging work, right, whether it's around, you know, race and diversity or mental health or whatever area it is that you're working in, 
you know, there's often that idea that I, I'm not ready yet, right? Because I don't have the paper. We've been conditioned so much that we have to have some type of validation, external validation, whether it's a degree or a certificate or something along those lines. I have had to have some type of formalized training. When the reality is, like you said, is these are my experiences, right? What what more validation do I need than to say, hey, I am sharing with you my story mm-hmm. about my own experiences and I am an expert in that area. Um, so I, I love that you mentioned that and I'm hoping that the listeners listening to this you know, will begin to maybe reshape the way that they view themselves and that, hey, right, we, we all bring to these uh, situations our own experiences. And so to accept those, to own those, right, and to really settle into that and, and allow that to drive the work that you're doing in the ver- various arenas that you're in. So, yeah, Kate, I, I'm so happy that you, you you're letting those experiences drive you. And, you know, this notion of expert too, and like the fact that like we need a certificate, we need a license, we need a degree in order to consider ourselves, you know, valued and valuable in the field that we work in or that we know, whichever field that might be, you know, education or otherwise, um, that is rooted very much deeply in, you know, colonialism and academia. And I actually recently, you know, it's so funny that we're talking about this right now because I, yesterday I was watching ironically, a TikTok that taught me something new, um, that even Maslow, who invented Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, took his model that he co-opted from the Blackfoot nation, from the Blackfoot indigenous nation, um, and took their, you know, their self-actualization pyramid that they developed for discussing the spirit and he co-opted it, right? So even the ways that we look at how we take care of ourselves have been colonized. And that, you know, sort of harkens back to the original uh, podcast you and I did about how, you know, mental health has been commodified. It's not only been commodified because it's popular all of a sudden, because, you know, we're addressing issues of gun violence and school, um, and other things, right? It's now a pressing issue because it's in our faces, but it's been co-opted and reframed in the specter of whiteness and colonialism and racism for longer than now. Um, and, and, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and other items, you know, that we consider to be fundamental to psychology are proof of that. So, Kate, I know, I know we talked a little bit about that last time, right? And, mm-hmm. and so I was hoping that maybe we can spend a, just a little more time, yeah. you know, diving into that and, and unpacking that a little bit. You know, I know we talked about, you know, how we are quick, right, to to stigmatize the, the real mental health issues, you know, while at the same time, as you pointed out, you know, kind of commoditizing, right? Like we are quick to say, oh, that's you know, that's crazy or whatever it might be. But when somebody is legitimately experiencing mental health, we're like, uh, like that's gross. Like I'm not touching that. Right. right? Like, like, so, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. So can, can we just maybe dive into that a little more? Cause I, I, I'm sure this is going to make some people kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. But that's, that's obviously why you're listening, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're used to being sitting in your uncomfortableness, learning and growing. And so I'm, I'm just wondering, can we dive into that a little more? 
Yeah. I mean, if you're here right now, you're listening to a podcast called Counter Narrative. So if you're yeah, here, it's yeah. assuming that you're ready to hear something you didn't already think about. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's so interesting because I was thinking about um, the ways in which, you know, not only our language shapes the way that we talk about, discuss or think about mental health, but you know, even like instances like where we're seeing things in the media, right? And I, I don't mean media like news, I mean media like entertainment that we consume, right? Um, this past week, I did a mini unit of TED Talks with my students, and I played one about bipolar disorder for them. Um, it was Ellen Forney's TED Talk on bipolar, or her bipolar disorder. And, you know, the kids kind of reflected on how they're used to seeing things like bipolar disorder as like a person who changes moods a, a, a bunch of different times throughout the same episode of a TV show. Right. And this woman really put it into perspective for them that like bipolar isn't just moody, you know, within minutes it's, I can be depressed for five months at a time and it'll last that long. And then I can be manic for five months at a time. Right. So these mood states aren't as malleable and flippant as they're made out to be. And I think that that misconception that, you know, our students are watching and teachers are watching and non-mental health professionals, lay people are watching and, you know, they're getting that dose of this is what it's like to be bipolar, but it's really not, right? So the inaccuracies that people are consuming are harming the conversation and adding things to it that, you know, people come with these preconceived notions and it actually does harm to potential students or colleagues who might have these lived experiences because what people think about them is not what they're really experiencing on a regular basis. So, you know, I, I'm curious, Kate, would, you know, like you said, right, we, we become so accustomed mm -hmm. and I think sometimes certain terms and uh, jargon, right? They, they, they become, they, they become part of our vocabulary. And so we're quick to say that, right? Like, oh, I, I'm bipolar or I'm starving or like we, we take these words that mean something completely different. Mm. Um, and we just use them on a regular basis. And like you said, it, it tarnishes the reality of what that condition is. Yeah. And so I'm curious, you know, for a listener who's listening and thinking, huh, I never thought about that before. You know, what are some, I guess, practical ways or, or just maybe reflection, right? Some strategies to say, how can I begin disassociating that one? And as well as how can I stop maybe becoming comfortable using those terms? How can I begin to change, you know, my vernacular so that way I'm not contributing, you know, to this problem? Yeah. And to go really English teacher for a second, I think you know, this is a lesson that everyone needs to learn, not just the students in my own classroom. Um, but, you know, language and words have power. And we need to take the, that language and those words very seriously. Right. So we've kind of fallen back on stigma, like stigmatized language to describe situations like, oh, like the weather's really bipolar today or, oh, you know, I have to go clean my house because I'm OCD, right? Things like that, mm -hmm. that people say. I think that it's because we're so used to being so lazy with our language that we don't realize that the language we're using is not 
at all descriptive enough or accurate enough. So when people, you know, use words like this, I think it's because they're not considering their language carefully enough or working to name what it is they're thinking or feeling or experiencing. Um, and, you know, using that, that rhetoric and falling back on terms that, you know, give us a general picture of what that person might be going through, but aren't necessarily on target, uh, is doing damage to the overall conversation. Because it gives, as you said, you know, people with legitimate experiences or diagnoses sort of, it, it, it misrepresents their daily life. So, you know, Kate, I, I think one of the last times when we, when we talked, you said something that stuck with me is that, you know, that your inconvenience is my reality. Mm. Um, and, and that is, it's stuck with me for, you know, all this time, apparently since February. Um, and, and I can only imagine that there may be people sitting here and thinking, oh, great, right? Now I have to continue adding to the list of words or things I cannot say, I cannot do because, you know, I'm going to offend someone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, but I think it's, like you said, it's important for us to realize that the words that we are using, you know, th that they do have that power. Um, and, and so, I, again, I'm, I'm glad you're sharing that. And and I know we, we talked again a little bit right before we jumped into this because as people are, are hopefully thinking about this, it's not just the the i guess the psychological ramifications right when we talk about mental health you know it manifests itself in so many different ways and i know that not only do you do work around mental health but one of the areas that you work in and has really hit home for me and my family recently is this idea around you know body shaming mm. right and, and body image and so can we dive i think a little bit into that and just kind of how that may impact then, right? That that physical aspect may impact the the mental aspect of the students in our classroom. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, the 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 idea that you know, oh, great, I have to add to this list of things that are going to just offend people if they come out of my mouth, right? When you think of it in that way, you're still centering yourself, mm. right? And centering the self, especially if you are someone whose career is service, like ours, you know, centering the self is not acceptable, right, in, in these conversations. Because if someone tells you what you said or what you did hurt me, you don't get to center yourself, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and that's not to say that teachers and public servants shouldn't be taking care of themselves, right? Um, that, you know, they're not a, 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 an important priority. But when someone tells you that something you're doing that has to do with their identity is harmful, you don't get to say that it isn't, right? So if you taking the long way, so to speak, and really thinking twice about the language that you use and being asked to be more descriptive about how you feel or what's going on around you um, is really difficult for you, then that's something to sit with. Because if your language adds to a larger conversation in a harmful way, then other people are silenced while you're centering yourself. 
Does that make sense? No, it, it absolutely does. You know, I what I love about what you are just sharing is, you know, obviously I do a lot of my own work in the area of right equity and and, and diversity, and it the same exact things that you said are the same exact things that we share in those spaces, yeah. right? If you say something and you hurt someone, like you don't get to tell them, like no, that that doesn't hurt you. Mm-hmm. You you can't like I, I don't know how else to say that. Like you don't have that privilege. And if you do feel that way, then it's you you either need to stop having that conversation mm-hmm. or go and do some work and try to figure out, you know, how to get better in this because you can't say, Well, I, I didn't mean to hurt you, so you know, it, it it's okay. Like, no, you we have to be you know, we have to accept and acknowledge that even though it was not intentional, mm-hmm. the the words that we had we say have power, and therefore, if we hurt someone, like we we have to own up to it, right? right? And that's across the board, and it doesn't matter how good of a person you are, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to say and do the wrong things, and I think that if we can learn that. And, and accept the fact like we are all human and therefore we're flawed mm-hmm. and we're going to make mistakes and that is okay, then then we can begin this work, right? We can do this. But the moment that we pretend that we're incapable of harming someone else because, you know, I'm not a racist or mm-hmm. I'm not a sexist or I'm not an ableist or whatever ist we want to add, yeah. right? Like that's where the issues become. Right. And, you know, it's it like, again, to talk about centering the self, right? It's more than about just you hurt an individual person, right? In using stigmatizing language, you added to other people's perception mm-hmm. of a larger conversation than just the two people that are talking in a space, right? So when we use words like that, like, bipolar or OCD, or even, you know, conventionally speaking, the R word, for instance, right? You know, if Mm. we say it person to person, that falls in dead air after a while. But if that pattern gets repeated, and people see that language as acceptable, right, we're showing each other that it's okay to treat a certain group of folks as lesser than, right? And it's Mm -hmm. adding to the overall stigma and overall conversation that misrepresents and even disparages an entire group of people. So when we continue to accept language like that, it means that we continue to accept myths and misconceptions about people with mental illness. And then those myths and misconceptions don't go away. Hmm. So Kate, you know, I I know we are talking about, I mean, in, in a and not in a way we are we're talking about you know concepts of privilege mm-hmm. right um there, there's a there's a great graphic that I, I would try to add to the show notes of this that talk about all the different types of privilege mm-hmm. and i don't mean like oh well you know i was just you know born more wealthy or i was bo- like just race like there there's so many areas that when we think about ourselves you know me even though i may be a a black man, right? I'm still a man, Mm -hmm. right? So the fact that I am a male, the fact that I am able-bodied, the fact, you know, that I, I guess that I would fall under the area of being socially acceptable as far as 
body weight and, you know, my image, right? Those are all privileges that I think that we oftentimes don't think about that on the other side of that coin exists individuals that, you know, are harmed, Mm -hmm. right? Whether we realize it or not. Um, And and there was, again, I I was listening to a book uh, not too long ago and they talked about that, right? In order for you to have privilege, it comes at the cost of someone else. And that is something that we have to realize is that your privilege in whatever area that exists, and I know that idea of privilege rubs people the wrong way, but again, accept the fact that you do have privileges. We all do, mm-hmm. but it comes at a cost of someone else. Right. And so once we realize that and accept it, then we can do the work that we're talking about. Yeah, and exactly. You know, I mean, when people think about privilege, they think, you know, immediately they're wounded. Their ego is wounded. Like, oh, I worked hard for what I have. What do you mean? And, you know, I always encourage people to think about it as privilege is what you don't have to think about, right? Mm, Like, I don't have to think about, you know, having racial slurs shouted at me, right? Because, or, or, you know, being denied a job because the name on my resume, quote unquote, sounds black, right? I don't have that problem. But I do have the issue of, you know, being not being able to disclose my diagnosis without fear, not being able to, you know, fit into certain spaces because of my body, right? So when we think about the ways that we do and don't move through the world, and what we have access to or don't, right? Privilege comes down to other people don't have to think about some th- some of the things that I do. And I don't have to think about some of the, the things that other people do, right? I will never have to have a conversation with my children that's, you know, that's about if you interact with law enforcement, do X, Y, and Z, right? If you want to stay alive. So those are just things that a lot of people are still processing. Um, and in some fashion, you know, I think the conversation about mental health and the conversation about body size are still at the back of that, of that bus because, mm-hmm. you know, people think those are things that are controllable, right? So if you are discriminated against because you're fat, that's your own fault. Lose weight. If you're discriminated against because you're anxious, just calm down, get it together, right? So the ways that people even perceive what marginalization is still has a long way to go. Because right now we're having a deeper conversation, especially about race, right? That's at the forefront of our consciousness. And it should be. But there are still things that people think, right, are not considered marginalization because people still believe that there are certain things you can control and that if you're treated differently because of them, that's your responsibility. Hmm. So, you know, this is a great transition, I think, then as educators, um, whether we're in a classroom, whether we're leading buildings, whether we're, you know, leading leaders, whatever it may be, what are some ways that we can become more cognizant, I think, in our own spaces of what privileges we bring in to those spaces, um, you know, the behaviors that we bring into those spaces and being more aware of what students may be bringing in? Because as we said, right, 
there may be things that we don't see, right? Those traditionally, like the, the, the psychological areas that we take for granted, um, or those physical things that we may be harboring bias against, because as you just pointed out, those are your fault. Mm-hmm. So as educators, what are some practical, I guess, ways or some starting points that I can do in my own classroom? Not, you know, I got to attend a PD this summer or things like that. But tomorrow or the next day that I'm listening from when I'm listening to this, I can go into my classroom and do this right now. You know, it's so funny you bring this up, too, because in in COVID, um, it's been really difficult to do um, what I usually do. I, I usually have my students arrange the classroom. Right. So like I mean, like physical space, like the desks. Um, and where they're positioned and how, you know, close together or far apart they are. I often try to opt for desks that are detached. So like the chair is separate from the desk because, you know, certain people in certain bodies can't fit in those attached desks. They're monstrous. So like, you know, even just the physical layout of your classroom, like let the students have a say in that because ultimately it's their learning environment, right? And they should feel comfortable in that learning environment. Right. Just because you're not you don't have to sit in the desks that they use doesn't mean that those desks are okay. Just because you don't have to walk through those rows that you arrange those desks in. Right. And that's kind of their area doesn't mean that it shouldn't be a safe space and a comfortable space for them to learn in. Um, So, you know, ultimately, and I said something similar last time, like invite the students to show you who they are and what works for them. Because some things that you don't even think about because you're not the student in that scenario, right? Um, are, are blind spots for us. And even that word blind spots, you know, there's a language thing that I'm still unlearning, right? right. Um, you know, even, even just the idea of like, I call them instead of blind spots, I say knowledge gaps a lot of the time, right? Even the knowledge gaps that we have, let the students teach us who they are and what they need from us and what they need from even just the physical space that they're learning in for that 40 minutes or whatever amount of time. You know, that's great. I I think, you know, there, there are things there that we don't often just think about, right? Like, like you said, the, the detached chairs and the desk, right? It might be convenient or we, we arrange them because it's convenient or it looks nice for Pinterest or whatever it may be. You know, and then it's like, yeah, that that child who is like, man, I don't I don't fit in there or I got to squeeze past, you know, my peer to get into my seat. Right. And then you're wondering, like, well, why are they why are they shutting down? Why are they not responding? Um, not to mention, right, the 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 deeper effects it's having on that child. You know, we, we talk about the structures of the brain, right, that your class is no longer a safe space that you you pride yourself on. But inadvertently you've just created you know this this traumatic environment for this child and you're like why why are they shutting down because and you know in those cases like to get specific about you know weight bias and body image like because that student literally quite literally does not fit in here right so now Mm -hmm. they now they socially don't fit in here and when we create spaces like that with whether with the physical space, with the space we create with our language, right? Because we can create space or, or, or not create space with the words that we do and do not use. 
Um, and the words that we do and do not use in front of our students signals to them, this is not a place where I belong. So, you know, as educators, it's so important to consider the language that we use, not just around our students, but around each other. You know, even in pandemic, I think because of my own internalized mental health stigma with being so terrified of being opened about that experience at work um, or at school, you know, I've defaulted to, and we all do this, I've defaulted to, hey, how are you? I'm good. Thanks. How are you? Right. Even if I just cried in the bathroom or woke up with, you know, an insane anxiety stomach ache that morning, the default answer is fine. Thanks. How are you? Right. Even when we're not fine. So I think that, you know, even being inauthentic around each other is hurting that conversation that we need to have about mental health overall. You know, um, the, the inability to just straight up be like, yo, I'm not okay. You know, even in a mm-hmm. year when everybody else is okay, because <laughs> yeah. no one's okay this year. We all know that, right? If you're, if you're, if you're shooting rainbows, you know, this year, I don't believe you. <laughs> um, but, you know, in a regular year where there's no pandemic, we should be able to say, you know, things are really hard right now to our colleagues and not be looked at like, what? Because we need to normalize that like there's more than one emotion. There's more emotions than just good or okay or fine. You know, I'm glad you you mentioned this, you know, this idea of normalizing the conversations around mental mm-hmm. health, right? Just the the idea that it's okay not to be okay. You know, and, and I think regardless of what level you're on, you know, there, there's so many times where we feel compelled where I can't show that. Um, you know, recently I had a staff member who did that, who came into my office, you know, and just was crying and said, I am not okay. You know, I am struggling right now and felt, you know, I, I'm not sure the word I want to use here, but it was almost like, how can I try to teach kids to be okay with not being okay? How can I teach them to love themselves through these situations when I can't do it myself? Right. right? And, you know, I created a space where, you know, the staff member was able to to kind of process and to share that with me. And, you know, it, it felt comforting to know like, hey, you feel okay enough to to share this with me. While simultaneously, when I walk into that building, right, I'm in that same capacity, yeah. right? Like, how do I show my staff members that it's okay not to be okay, mm-hmm. you know, while, you know, it's that vulnerability piece. Right. And so I'm really glad you're bringing this up because I, yeah, it's something we all struggle with. And I'll admit, I often, I'm fine. And my, I have my one staff member who checks on me every day before anybody else and says, no, you're not. What's going on? (laughs) And I appreciate you. You know who you are. I appreciate you because it gives me a chance to open up, dump all of that out. And then I'm okay. And I'm, I'm in a place now where I can operate for the rest of the day, right. As as opposed to dragging that around with me. So 
I think maybe that's a, a point, right? Where we start finding that person or finding that space where, where you can have that open and honest and vulnerable conversation, you know, and maybe those are the baby steps we take to normalizing this entire process. And I think too, with like the idea that, you know, saying to someone, I'm not okay. Like we live in this culture where like, if someone says something's not okay, the knee jerk reaction is whoever's receiving the I'm not okay has to be the person to fix it. Right. It's not always Mm -hmm. about, you know, putting, putting the bandaid on. Sometimes I just need that to be heard and then it goes away. Right. Sometimes, you know, you know, it's okay to, you know, if I tell you I'm not okay and you need to set a boundary and be like, yeah, me either. And I can't carry your stuff, but here's something else that might be helpful. Right. So it's okay to receive someone else's emotions without making them yours, without picking them up, Mm. you know, and something that's been frustrating to me, especially in the pandemic is now that everybody has gotten a taste of what it feels like to be anxious or be burned out or be depressed because isolation and overwork and school burnout, you know, everyone kind of knows what it's like a little bit, but like, are we going to extend that same compassion to people who lived with these conditions prior to neurotypical people experiencing them? You know, that's the day, that's the day that I'm waiting for is when all of this is over, how do we continue to treat people with mental illness? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we 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 have talked, I think, through this whole pandemic about that, right? That things have come to the light, things that, you know, have always mm-hmm. been there. But now that they've come to the light, right, we're now addressing them because of maybe certain demographics that it's impacting. We were taking a different look at mm-hmm. these things. But you're right. Like when things kind of return back to whatever normalcy we're going to have, are we going to then brush these things back under the carpet where they used to be? You know, we, we talk about it with curriculum. We talk about it with, you know, race and diversity, right? Like this is yet another area. And I'm sorry for the people listening, like, oh my God, yet another area. But like, no, yeah, this, this is something else that we need to make sure that when all the dust settles, that it's still being held up to say, all right, like, can we, can we talk about Mm -hmm. this still? Yeah. Oh, Kate, I, I, I'm so excited that you're able to come back on and I have a feeling, um, it's not a feeling, it's just me projecting my <laughs> thoughts out here, um, that you will not be a stranger to this show. Um, so I, I want to say this, I'm sure that there are people who are listening right now who are saying, you know, Kate, I, I love that you gave me some to do's mm-hmm. right now, right? But I also want to dive into this a little more. And I know that we didn't talk about this, but maybe right off the top of your head, you might have a resource or two, whether it's a a, a Twitter person to follow or a book to read or an, another podcast to listen to, so long as you come <laughs> back here. Um, you know, just where can I might might be able to go to do a deeper dive into either understanding mental health a little more to appreciate it a little more, or even to begin doing that, that self work. So that way I'm not so self-centered while I'm doing that work. Yeah. Um, I think so for, in terms of, Ooh, I have like so many things that just popped in my mind. 
Um, but the one thing that I love is actually back home in our Twitterverse, um, it's the hashtag PTSD and beyond chat. It's every Monday at 8 p.m. EST, um, Eastern Standard Time. And they talk about any and all things mental health weekly, but it's also sort of a slow chat so that like people can use the hashtag if they need support. Um, and it's run by a fantastic woman named Dr. Deborah Lind. Um, and she, she kind of keeps track of the hashtag to see if there's anyone throughout the week who needs assistance. And it doesn't have to be for post-traumatic stress. It can be for any mental health concern at all. Um, so that's a resource that I really love um, and spend a lot of time with th- throughout the week, most weeks. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. You know, I, I know it's not about this and this may spark up a little bit of a conversation here. That's okay. People are like, wait, I thought it was ending. Um, I, I just always, we've, we've had a lot of conversations around mental health in my other spaces, you know, and the one thing that I think bothers me is I guess the overall lack of the availability of mm-hmm. supports, you know, I, you know, I, I personally, I, I recently encountered, you know, I, you know, somebody was in a, a, a space where they were receiving supports and, you know, the amount of individuals who were, it was like, it was all based on like mm-hmm. insurance, right? Not, not on your recovery, not on your status, but on insurance. And it was like, well, I'm sorry, your insurance is done. You have to now leave. And it's like, wait a second, yeah. you know, we, we have all of these supports in other areas, right? Or, or reactive mm-hmm. sort of things, right? Like, I just wish that we would be able to develop systems and and for the individuals out there who are doing this work, like, please, please make this your thing. Cause I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm in these other areas, but, but to be able to say, you know what, I can pick up that phone, you know, and to talk to somebody at any point before things happen without having to worry, like, do I, do I yeah. have insurance? Yeah. Right. And, and not just to get screened, not just to say, okay, yeah, this is, you know, potentially what you're going through. Let's find you an expert. But like, why don't I have relative ease to accept, you know, access, you know, therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists, whoever it may be that I need to connect with. And then we sit back and we wonder why we see the symptoms of these, right. In in the world, right. The the mass shootings and, you know, the, the chaos that we see. And it's like, well, maybe just maybe if that person had access to, you know, comprehensive mental health supports, maybe those things would have And not just comprehensive mental health support, but continuous mental health support. You just hit the nail on the head. Like, you know, I've experienced so many intake appointments that it's like, can I just talk to the same person more than once and not have to tell them why I feel this way several times before I, you know, receive the assistance that I need, right? Even the idea of psychiatric hospitalization, it's, it's almost seen by many people with mental health diagnoses as like, why are you punishing me by taking me to the hospital? Right? Because the system that we've developed deals with the problem after the problems already happened. And yeah, insurance plays a huge role in that. And there's just another, yet another example of commodification and colonization taking a role 
in how we deal with this issue. Hmm. Well, to my listeners, we are going to be wrapping up now. I just really had to get that one off my chest because I was so frustrated going through that process and, and hearing about individuals who were just like draw. And I was like, this is, this is insane. But like, oh, well, there, there we go. Right there. So self-reflection, right? This was not correct. This is not right. Um, but again, I would never have thought about it until I mm-hmm. experienced it. Right. And then when I experienced it, I, you know, that's where I was like, wait, this is not yeah. acceptable. Right. But again, my inconvenience is someone else's reality. That was an inconvenience to me in that moment. But like, no, there are people struggling with this for for years yeah. and years, and that is not okay. So I just, I really needed to say that in this space because I don't know who's going to hear this, but if you're in the position to to do something about this, like it, it needs, yeah. it needs to be done. So, Kate, with all of that being said, and my, they're probably like, this is a roller coaster. I told you guys at the beginning, right? Like this was not a normal episode. No script here. Uh, no, no questions. Um, so, Kate, I'm sure that individuals listening, you know, if they weren't connected with you, if they were not following you from the first time you were on, what are some ways that they can find you? What are some ways that they could connect with you to, you know, to continue learning more about what you're doing or just, you know. Just to um, I am a huge Twitter user. My, uh, my handle is at just teaching ELA. I'm also on Instagram under the same handle. Uh, you can find me and reach out anytime on either of those platforms. Wonderful. Well, Kate, I, once again, I want to say thank you, you know, not just for being on the show, but for, you know, obviously being an educator in our classrooms and working with our students and ELA, right. A subject near and dear to my heart but really for having these conversations and opening the eyes and the minds of individuals who are willing to listen, um, because these are definitely topics I know I learn every time I connect with you. So I just want to say again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Sunday, 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 June 27th. Join us for Edupodlooza. There will be over a dozen Edupodcasters. Listen for some rhythm and rhyme. That's a poetry slam, boys and girls. Roundtable discussion. Just some teachers talking about teaching and laughing and having a good time. Role-playing games. Oh, yeah. For you nerds out there, you know you're going to like that stuff. Radio drama. Dum-dum-dum-dum. And really funny people. At least really funny looking, if nothing else. 1 to 9 on June 27th, Eastern Standard Time. We'll be live streaming. There'll be links. We'll put it on the Twitter. We'll make sure that you know where it is. Follow us at Unprocast if you're not already, because that's probably going to be the easiest way to know when it's going live. June 27th. Free up your calendar now. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening to the Counter Narrative Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to like, subscribe, and of course, share it with friends and family. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the show, so please leave a comment or two as well. Now, I'm not sure what platform you're using, but the show can be found on Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. 
If the show isn't on your preferred site, let me know and I'll be sure to get it up and running. This podcast is also featured on schoolrubric.com, where you can find educational articles, videos, and interviews with educators from around the globe. Be sure to connect with me and other listeners by following the show on Twitter at the CN Podcast and joining the show's Facebook group. Take care.